thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 13th of November. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith and this week I'm joined by Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello. This week's show is not to be sneezed at, forgive the pun. We're exploring some of the latest science surrounding seasonal and pandemic flu. And we'll be hearing how respiratory infections can cause heart attacks and a new way to make vaccines quickly and cheaply by, believe it or not, growing them in tobacco plants. The production facility in North Carolina works with batches of about 15,000 plants. 15,000 plants translate into about uh, 30 kilograms of plant material, so it looks green. And then that green material can yield about 5 million doses of vaccine. And I'll be chatting with the scientific advisor on the new Hollywood blockbuster Contagion to find out if films really represent reality when it comes to a pandemic. So, if you'd like to get in touch with us with any questions or comments... You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page, which is at thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook. Or you can, of course, drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Now, most people know that flu is an infection of the airways, but that doesn't mean that its effects on the body are confined to the nose, throat and lungs. In fact, Dr Charlotte Warren-Gash from University College London explained to Chris how she has found that respiratory infections, including the flu, are also linked to heart attacks. Well, we've been looking at influenza virus and heart attacks. We're interested in looking at whether flu can actually trigger heart attacks in some vulnerable people because some of the people who have heart attacks don't have any risk factors and it's not clear why they have their, their heart attack. You mean people who have a heart attack usually have some kind of antecedent problem like high blood pressure or high cholesterol? You're seeing people who have heart attacks have none of those risk factors but they do have flu, potentially? Well, possibly. Um, it's still a grey area. We're really not sure about the link, whether there's a, a strong link or not, and which is why we've been doing this research. So how did you do it and what did you do? We used a big general practice research database that contains records on over 5 million patients in the UK. These are all anonymised records, but we could see when people went to the GP with a flu-like illness. And then we used linked data from a heart attack registry database, also in the UK, And that gave us detailed information on people who'd had heart attacks. And so linking these two data sets together, we pulled out a group of people who'd had both a heart attack and had been to the GP with a flu-like illness. And then we began our analysis. And our analysis was looking at um, something called the self-control case series. So what that means is you take people who've had heart attacks and you look at whether they were more likely to have their heart attack 
in the time period just after visiting the GP with a flu-like illness compared to other times in their lives. Oh, that's neat. So, in other words, each person is their own control, aren't they? Because if they're not having a heart attack when they haven't had a flu-like illness, then they're controlling for the time when they have had a flu-like illness. Yes, that's right. And it makes this, this type of method quite efficient because you don't need to find control patients to compare them to. Because when you look at different cases and controls, sometimes there can be other differences as well. So you can introduce bias that way. But here, as you say, everyone was acting as their own control. And million-dollar question, what did you find? Well, what we found was that um, in the first few days after having a, a flu-like illness or a respiratory infection, people were nearly four times more likely to have their MI um, than in other time periods. We wanted to look really, though, whether this was an, a specific effect of the flu virus or whether it was more of a general effect of any old respiratory infection. Did you know they actually were flu cases, though? Well, no, this is one of the problems with using this type of data. It's GP data, and you rarely have the people have rarely been tested for flu. So we had to use various proxy measures for what we thought might be flu, such as the codes that GPs use to classify the illnesses or looking at the amount of flu that was actually circulating in the community. When we used those different proxy measures, we actually got very similar results when you compared those illnesses more likely to be due to flu compared to other respiratory illnesses. So to summarise, this didn't seem to be a specific effect of flu. It seems that any sort of respiratory infection that we found in our study could actually have this triggering effect in in vulnerable groups. And it seemed to be really the elderly that this was happening in, mostly people over 80. How big's the effect? It's basically a four-fold increase that we saw in the first few days immediately following a, a respiratory infection. And the effect gradually tapered off over time. So about a month after your infection, there was really no increased risk at all. But having said that, obviously, most heart attacks are not going to be triggered by a respiratory infection. And most respiratory infections are not going to trigger a heart attack. So this really was just a small, very small proportion of people, but quite a significant effect in those particularly vulnerable groups. How do you think that having the upper respiratory infection might cause someone to then go on and have a heart attack in that risk window? Well, I mean, I think it's a bit unclear at the moment, but um, it's been suggested that flu, um, well, flu is an acute inflammatory event. And when your body is subjected to acute inflammation particularly something like flu that can affect all parts of your body. It's not just a lung. It can cause muscle aches, it can cause fevers. So it can cause symptoms affecting the whole body. And it's suggested that it can cause a systemic inflammatory response to an inflammation all around the body that might then also include the coronary arteries and might in that way trigger a heart attack. But I think it's still unclear and there's quite a lot of research going on about potential biological mechanisms at the moment. Given you found this then, what should we do about maybe raising awareness of the link or is there anything we should do is the effect so trivial that it's not actually worth worrying about no i think it is important particularly because we have a good flu vaccine um to help prevent flu so and, and this vaccine is quite underutilized particularly in people with some chronic conditions who are and the recommendation is that people with chronic diseases such as chronic heart disease um, should have the flu vaccine every year so i think it's important to raise awareness in those groups and amongst their gps as well so that they do encourage people to come forward for the flu vaccination each year. What about also telling GPs, look, there is this association that I've found between respiratory infection and then heart attack afterwards. So if you see someone with symptoms that might be an evolving heart attack, maybe have slightly higher index of suspicion, maybe do something about it more than just write it off as indigestion. Uh, yes, I think that's definitely true. 
we wouldn't just take this one study in isolation as evidence. We need to gather evidence from a number of sources. But absolutely, I hope that this study will contribute to the evidence available for GPs and, and other practitioners. Is that what you're going to do? You're now going to say, let's go and look at some of the individual viruses and see if there are any particular viruses that are more of a risk than others then? Uh, well, that would be nice to do. Um, I think it's important, though, to, to make sure that this does have some practical applications. And I think... Um, flu is really one of the only respiratory viruses for which there is an effective prevention. Um, so that's why we focus on flu at the moment. Um, but yes, potentially in the future we could look at other, other viruses as well. So if you're over a certain age, getting the flu vaccine could protect you from more than just an infection. That was Dr Charlotte Warren-Gash from University College London. She was speaking to Chris at the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza, the ESWI conference in Malta, where she was presenting those results. You had your flu vaccine yet, Sarah? Not this year. I, I had it a couple of years ago, but not this year. Yeah. OK, sounds like there's every reason to pursue it then. Thank you, Sarah. Now, as we enter flu season here in the Northern Hemisphere, to help to track the spread of seasonal flu, researchers at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine have launched an initiative that they call the Flu Survey. And Professor John Edmonds is one of the team behind the project. He's with us now. Hello, Hello John. Hello there. So what is it you're trying to find out with this survey? We know surprisingly little about the details about how flu spreads through the community and just how much the burden of flu really is out, out there in the community because the, our traditional forms of surveillance are monitoring people going to the GP so the GP records if they see somebody with flu-like illness. Um, but we know that that's just a very small fraction of the total amount of disease that there's out there. So what we want to get a handle of is just how much there is out there, how quickly it spreads. And we also want to get um, to know a bit more about how well the vaccine works. We know that the vaccine doesn't always match up terribly well to the circulating strain, so we want to get a very early indication of that. And our survey can help us do that. And we can also get some indications about simple questions you think you might know the answer to, but actually you don't. So going by public transport, is that actually a risk for flu? And if so, how much of a risk? So these are the kind of questions we're trying to, trying to address. Gosh, I hope it's not a, a risk, otherwise we're, we're all going to be in trouble, aren't we? Um, so how are you collecting this data? Because it sounds like you're going to be collecting quite a bit of data in order to answer some of those questions. We're trying to ask the, the public to, to collect the data for us. So we've set up a, an online survey uh, called the Flu Survey, and it's at www.flusurvey.org.uk. And what we're asking people to do is just to log on and just to tell us um, whether they're ill or not. The first time you log on, then we ask some background questions about your use of public transport and so on and, and whether you've been vaccinated. And after that, all we're asking is that people just let us know whether they've got any symptoms or not. And actually, we're really interested when people don't have symptoms as well. It's as important to us as when people do have symptoms. And if you don't have symptoms, it, it really takes it's just two clicks of a mouse, and so it's all over in a few seconds. But, of course, those people could have had flu and had no symptoms, or equally they could not have had flu and had no symptoms. So how will you discriminate between the two? Well, it's when you have symptoms, of course, it's the difference between when people have got symptoms and when they haven't got symptoms, where individuals act as their own controls. So if you log on and tell us that you're fine, and then you log on and tell us that you have a bit of a sniffle or something, then we can see the difference. That allows us then to start to track the spread. And once you've got all this data, how will you begin to decode it? And then how will it inform our understanding of what flu does in the community and how it spreads? 
Okay, so there's lots of different ways that we can do it. So first of all, um, we're asking about where, where people live, um, and so we can get some idea about the geographical spread. And that's some of the geographical information is up on our website, so there's maps that you can see. And if you log on and, and report, or even if you report that you're fine, you can look to see um, the incidence of flu in your, in your locality. So it, um, we can give you an idea about how many other people around you, who, you know, might have flu at the moment. And then we also are looking to do a matched cohort study. So what we're going to do is we're going to match people. So, for instance, we're going to take people who've been vaccinated and match them with a group who are otherwise epidemiologically similar. So match them with people who are the same age, for instance, um, and they, they have the, if they're adults, whether they live with children or not, because that's an important risk factor. And we'll match them and then we'll track to see the uh, incidence of flu in those two groups. So the vaccinated group and the unvaccinated group. And we'll be doing that online, uh, live, as the epidemic progresses this winter. So you'll be able to see immediately the difference in incidence in the two groups. Which will be useful to get an idea as to exactly how good the vaccine is, but how will you confirm that those people who your system reports have had flu have really had flu compared with people who have had a very bad cold or some other influenza-like illness that wasn't really flu, it just felt like it? At an individual level, it's rather difficult to do. So each time someone reports, we can't really tell whether they have flu or they have something, some other virus that's similar to flu. But we can, on average, we can tell whether people have flu. One of the ways we can do it is actually whether the vaccine, we can see whether the vaccine worked. Last season, for instance, we could monitor the effect of the vaccine and and by doing that, um, we can see that actually what we're recording, a lot of it actually must be flu. If the vaccine works against it, then it must be flu. We're now doing a study which is identical to a study done in, in nine other European countries. From this moment onwards, we've linked all of our different systems together, so they're identical. And one of our sister studies in Belgium is actually going to be doing some testing of, um, of, our, of the cases that they observe there in Belgium this, this season to, to see whether they genuinely are flu. What's the trajectory of flu, both across Britain but also across Europe? Because historically we always say that it arrives in Scotland first and then makes its way south. What about the rest of Europe? Uh, yeah, we don't really know. And part of the problem is is that our existing surveillance systems, which are GP-based surveillance systems, so those are the systems that everyone has uh, across Europe, um, and we can't really make comparisons between them um, because there are differences in the way the GPs record illness, there are differences in the way that people go to see their GP. So there are orders of magnitude differences in flu rates across Europe which doesn't make any sense. I mean, we don't really think that there's that if you live in, say, Belgium, you're 100 times more likely to get flu than if you live in Holland. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but the system records 100 times higher rates. Um, and so from this moment onwards, with flu survey and our sister um, surveys, now that there are absolutely identical, the only difference is they're translated into the local languages, we can now start to see uh, just how quickly it really does move across Europe because we're all measuring the same thing, exactly the same thing. Of course, if you do live in Belgium, you will have more phlegm. We'll have to leave it there for a minute, John. That's Professor John Edmonds. He's from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Sarah Caster-Perry. Now, as we've heard, vaccines against seasonal flu can not only stop people succumbing to the infection, but they can also reduce the risk of onward complications, like heart attacks. But vaccines are very expensive. They also need to be updated regularly because the virus changes or mutates year on year, and they can be quite slow to manufacture, which can be a problem when large amounts of a new vaccine are needed all at once and in a hurry, such as when a pandemic occurs. 
Well, now a new biotechnology company called Medicargo have developed a technique for quickly and cheaply producing vaccines using tobacco plants. Genes from the flu virus are added to the plants using a bacterial Trojan horse. And Professor Brian Ward from McGill University is the medical officer for Medicargo, and he told me how it works. The platform that's used is a transient transfection in a tobacco plant. What that means is that pretty much all of the cells of the leaves of young tobacco plants are infected transiently by a bacterium that's carrying a little bit of DNA that we instruct the bacterium to deliver to the plant cells. As a non-plant biologist, one of the coolest things about this entire process to me was the fact that you get the bacteria into all of the plant cells by literally turning these young tobacco plants upside down in water and then sucking the air out of the plant with a vacuum. It's called vacuum agaroinfiltration, but it's fantastic because what happens is if you suck hard enough on the root of a plant, the leaves collapse like sponges. You submerge them in a bath of these bacterium, and then when you release the vacuum, every cell in every leaf of the plant sucks the liquid in containing the bacteria and every plant cell is infected simultaneously. So you get little seedlings of tobacco plants which are making proteins from the genes that you've added with this bacterium. The bacterium contains the genetic information in a plasmid and that plasmid directs the production of the viral protein within the cytoplasm of the plant cell so that that single viral protein then migrates to the surface of the plant cell and it auto-assembles into these small virus-like particles that look from the outside like a virus but have nothing on the inside. They're empty. They don't contain virus genetic material. But critically, they can behave as a virus in terms of their immunogenicity. You can put them in, the body thinks they look like a virus, so it makes an immune response against them. Yes, these virus-like particles essentially trick the body into believing that there's a viral infection, and so the body makes a response that it would typically make to a virus that's infecting them. But in this case, it's just a response to the surface hemagglutinin protein, and so you get the benefit without much of the risk. How do you get the virus-like particles out and not end up with a whole lot of plant gloop going with it? So that's another really interesting thing that the company has done. Initially, they did grind up the plant cells. As it turns out, these virus-like particles collect between the cell wall that surrounds each plant cell and the outside membrane of the plant cell in these pockets, essentially, that contain large numbers of virus-like particles. The cell wall can be digested with enzymes that are directed against plant wall but not plant membrane. As a result, you can put the plant mass, just slightly ground up plant material, into a vat with enzymes and the cell walls are digested away. Because the virus-like particles are between the cell wall and the outside membrane of the plant cell, they are simply released into the liquid in which you're doing the digestion, making the the purification very easy. Now when we make flu vaccines in eggs, you get roughly three doses per egg. So how many doses do you get per tobacco plant? It's highly variable. The production facility in North Carolina works with batches of about 15,000 plants. 15,000 plants translate into about 
uh, 30 kilograms of plant material, so it looks green. And then that green material can yield about 5 million doses of vaccine. So quite a bit, and presumably very fast to make. That's one of the huge advantages of this platform, is that the tobacco plants are young, healthy, growing. They're transfected. When they're harvested between five and eight days later, depending on how much sun there is, they look perfectly healthy. And so you harvest and then process. So that the cycle of production is actually very, very fast. No risk of people getting hooked on flu vaccines. I don't think so. (laughs) No risk of people getting hooked on flu vaccines. But being more serious, when you put the vaccine material into a clinical setting, what have you done with this so far? Has this just gone through animals? Have you just done this in terms of demonstration? Where are you in this sort of approval process? So far, the company has done the standard work preclinical, which means animal studies and toxicity studies. And in fact, two of the products have gone into human trials. One of the products, the H5 monovalent vaccine, has gone forward into a phase two study. This is against bird flu, H5N1. This is against the bird flu. So that's the product that's furthest advanced. The total number of people involved in those studies is about 300 so far, phase one and phase two. And the seasonal H1 vaccine, which is again a monovalent vaccine that targets the circulating H1 virus now, that's gone into 100 people to date. Have you actually got to the stage where those people have been challenged with flu so you know that they're making a protective response? So one of the options for testing a flu vaccine is to do a human challenge study, but we haven't done that yet. Right now in phase one and phase two trials, what you're looking for is safety, how well the vaccines are tolerated and what kind of immune response they make. And so far these vaccines are very well tolerated, very similar to the kinds of responses that you get from a standard trivalent vaccine, but they also elicit really quite strong immune responses. The H1 vaccine certainly meets all of the criteria for licensure for the trivalent vaccines, so clearly that's the next step for the company is to actually move from the monovalent H1 vaccine to incorporate an H3-containing vaccine and a a B-type virus to make a trivalent virus-like particle vaccine made in plants. And the timeline for that? Can I say soon and get away with it? I I think that there's a hope that by the end of 2011 that there will be a candidate trivalent vaccine that can be tested at least preclinically. What about cost? That's one of the huge advantages of this platform. Using plants as the bioreactors instead of stainless steel vats in a high-production facility allows the cost of goods to be considerably lower. And so these vaccines can be produced for less than the standard vaccines that are produced in eggs. Furthermore, the facility itself, because it's not based on incubation of eggs and a supply chain of high-quality eggs and so on, is also considerably less expensive than the investment in an egg-based facility. That was Professor Brian Ward from McGill University speaking to me at the ESWI influenza conference and to be clear as the politicians like to say you don't actually have to smoke the tobacco plant produced vaccine you inject it laying the facts bare the naked scientists this is the naked scientists with me chris smith and with sarah caster perry still to come we'll be hearing from the scientific advisor on the new blockbuster film contagion which tells the story of the outbreak of a global pandemic and in the meantime though 
scientists have announced success with a drug that they call adipotide. Now, this is an injectable agent which they have now successfully trialled in monkeys, including rhesus monkeys and macaques and baboons, and it's a fat buster. Now, most of the drugs that we have to help people to lose weight actually work by trying to target appetite. They put you off food or they stop you absorbing calories. This is different. What this agent does is it actually breaks down fat cells in the body. So if you remove the fat cells, it's effectively like a chemical liposuction. Now, the reason that they're trying to do this is because obesity is a, a huge problem internationally. And just in the UK, it costs the NHS an estimated £3 billion a year in treatment of both obesity-related disorders and also onward problems such as arthritis and diabetes, because obesity is a direct risk factor for getting diabetes later. Now, what this group did is it's um, a project which is being funded at the University of Texas, and uh, the group leader is Renata Pasqualini. What she and her colleagues have done is to find a little string of amino acids. So these are chemical building blocks that make proteins. And this string of amino acids address themselves to the blood vessels that supply fat tissue. In other words, if you inject this stuff, it goes around in the bloodstream and it looks for a marker in the blood vessels only in fat cells. And it locks onto those fat cells and it's linked to a second short string of amino acids, which when it's taken inside the fat cells in the adipose tissue, it causes the cells to kill themselves because it attacks their mitochondria, the little powerhouses inside the cells that keep the cells alive. So the fat cells basically break down. And what they did was to administer the drug by injection over a 28-day period to a group of obese monkeys. Now, these are naturally obese monkeys. Um, I asked Renata Pasqualini how you come by an obese monkey, and she said, well, in many primate facilities, uh, there are examples of monkeys which, just as humans tend to overeat, there are some monkeys that will also overeat and, and, and be less active, and they put on weight. And she said, if you pick on these, these ones that are carrying a bit too much weight, and, which is what they did, they used them in their study, they found that they could get a 40% reduction in body fat in these monkeys over the four-week, five-week period. This translated into a 14% reduction in weight, and uh, their body mass index, their BMI, dropped by 20%. The animals, on the other hand, showed no abnormal signs at the normal doses, and they also showed no impairment of their lipid profile in their blood. Um, because you might think, well, if you're breaking down this fat tissue, does this not damage or harm the lipids in the bloodstream? It doesn't seem to. At the highest dose, they did demonstrate the animals seem to be passing more urine and becoming slightly dehydrated, but, and they don't know exactly why. But at the lower doses, this didn't occur. Obviously, there is an issue here, which is what happens when you stop taking the agent. And she said, well, the monkeys will, if they relapse back to their original lifestyle, they will put the weight back on again because you can make new fat cells. But at the same time, this is an initial finding. It proves it works in a monkey and therefore it will probably work in a human. And they're now starting a clinical trial. They're going to initially go for people who have prostate cancer who have been recruited into the trial because these people often have excess weight for various reasons because of the hormones they've been taking for their prostate cancer. And so if you can reduce their weight, you could also improve their prospects and their prostate cancer. So they're about to launch that. Isn't that exciting? I wonder whether if you're killing off all these fat cells, are there any potential dangers there? Because it's a really important endocrine tissue. It releases lots of important hormones into the body. That's a very good question. And I asked Renata Pasqualini, if you remove these fat cells, because fat makes a hormone called leptin, leptos means thin in Greek, if you remove the fat cells and you therefore remove the supply of leptin, leptin goes to your brain and turns off appetite. I said, is there not a danger that the animals might end up overeating subsequently because they don't have this 
turn your eating off type signal anymore and she said actually in studies they've done it would appear that they just reduce their intake because it's almost like the body now knows that it's got fewer places to put the calories into so they just seem to eat less automatically which is kind of interesting but it's early days and we, we will need to find out what happens when we get into human trials which they're now doing. Sarah. Researchers have found that the strain of human immunodeficiency virus most abundantly present in the genital tract is not necessarily the strain that infects a sexual partner. Now, unprotected heterosexual sex is the most common way that HIV is transmitted. And Deborah Burras from Emory University in Atlanta and her colleagues studied heterosexual couples in Rwanda and Zambia who were serodiscordant, which means that one of them was HIV positive and the other one was only just diagnosed as HIV positive. Uh, Now, an an HIV-positive person can carry many strains of the virus in their genital tract as it mutates really rapidly, which is one of the reasons we're having a really hard time trying to figure out a vaccine for this particular virus. But previous studies have shown that a single strain of HIV establishes infection in the new host, in the the partner, known as the... And this is known as the transmission bottleneck. Uh, And through studying vaginal swabs and semen and blood, blood samples from eight heterosexual couples where one was HIV positive, they actually found that this was definitely the case. But if the infection was just random you'd expect that the strain of the virus that was the most common in the genital tract would be the most likely to cause the infection in the sexual partner. But when they compared the gene sequences for proteins on the outside of the virus that vary between the different strains, so you can compare the different strains of virus, they found that the strain in the blood of the newly infected partner was not the same as the most common strain in the genital tract of the chronically infected partner. The team suggests that this is possibly due to selection of the viral strain best suited for successful transmission rather than just the most abundant strain being present. So you'd have many, many virus particles being transmitted to the uninfected sexual partner, but most of them won't be able to infect the person. And it's only the strain with the right attributes, so things like being more efficient at binding to receptor proteins on host cells, they're the ones that are going to be able to infect a new host. And this finding is really important because we know that the transmission of the virus is via the genital tract. But if the strain that actually manages to infect the other partner isn't the commonest one, then there must be a mechanism at work that could affect our strategies to treat the virus and reduce onward infection rate as well. How fascinating. So... Basically, if we can find out what's special about those strains that do transmit, although they are much less common than the most abundant ones there, there might be something in that that will inform how we do make a vaccine or some other strategy to block the transmission. Exactly. So if there's one particular thing that allows them to be more successful at transmission, that could be a kind of a vulnerable point that we could exploit with with a new treatment. Let's hope so. From Earth into outer space now. A really fascinating piece of work that's been published this week. I I had to report on this one. There's a researcher at the University of California, Santa Cruz, called uh, Michel Fumagalli, and he and his colleagues reckon that they've spotted two clouds of the primordial gas from which everything else in the universe has formed. Effectively, this is the gas that the Big Bang gave rise to. Now, for many years, theoreticians have put together hypotheses as to what the Big Bang would produce. In other words, you've got this sudden violent explosion which goes off and it turns enormous amounts of energy into matter. And within a few minutes of the Big Bang happening, the universe, which starts off at about a billion degrees, cools to about 500 million degrees. And at that point, it's cool enough for 
particles to begin to aggregate and form matter. But the majority of the matter that would have been formed was hydrogen. We also theorise that there would have been a little bit of helium and a trace of lithium. So there's the theory. The problem is, without actually having some gas which resulted from the Big Bang, to measure, it's very hard to say, well, the theory's right. And so scientists have been looking for a long time out into the deep space trying to find some gas clouds that result from this Big Bang. The problem is they're all contaminated with metals. Where would the metals come from? Well, that means stars. So in other words, there's already contamination of the gas, so it could already have skewed the data. But what this group have done, um, and published in the journal Science this, this week, is they've used two very bright light sources. These are known as quasars. They're amongst the brightest things in the universe. They're produced by matter falling into a black hole. And as it gets squeezed Uh, as it falls into the black hole, it produces enormous amounts of radiation, and that radiation we can see. And so they looked at two quasars. They've got catchy names, J1134 plus 5742, and a second one called QO956 plus 122. And using the Keck-1 telescope in Hawaii, they stared at these particular light sources. And, of course, as the light comes towards us on Earth, if it goes through gas, for example, then the gas will absorb from that light any particular wavelengths of light according to or corresponding to the elements which are in the gas because every element has a particular wavelength of light that it absorbs or emits at. And when they looked at this particular cloud of gas, they actually found that they've actually got a metallicity, in other words, metal contamination, which is 100 to 1,000 times lower than that we've ever seen before. So it does look like they've got real pristine primordial post-Big Bang gas. And really encouragingly, the measurements marry up almost exactly with what we would predict on the basis of theory. So it looks like it vindicates and validates all of our previous suggestions. That's really amazing. So are these gas clouds some of the oldest things that we can see? These ones are, or at least this gas, appears to be about 2 billion years after the Big Bang. So that would put it about 11.5 billion years ago, the light that, that we're seeing would have passed through that gas about then. And we know that because the light is stretched out into the red a little bit more. It's what's called redshift. But what's very interesting is that people think that uh, when the early galaxies were beginning to form, they would have buffeted and pulled in material like these clouds of gases in these very cold flows of gas into the forming galaxies in what are called cold flows. They're another theory, again, not yet been proven. But what Michel Fumagalli thinks is that perhaps what they're seeing in these clouds of gas are some of those early cold flows as they're known. That's really, really exciting. Could be very interesting new development. Well, now with a roundup of some of the other stories making scientific headlines this week, here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. A protein interaction on red blood cells could be a prime target for an effective malaria vaccine. Symptoms of malaria only begin when the plasmodium parasite causing the disease infects red blood cells to replicate. Publishing in Nature this week, Julian Rayner's team at the Sanger Institute have identified a crucial interaction needed by all strains of the parasite to get into the red blood cells, which, if blocked, could stop the parasite in its tracks, preventing the onset of disease. So the interaction is between a parasite protein called RH5 and a protein that's present on the surface of the red blood cell called basogen. But if we block that interaction, we can completely prevent invasion down to undetectable levels. So it seems to be an essential interaction. The parasite needs it in order to get inside red blood cells. Looking at an object and paying attention to it involves separate regions of the brain's visual system. Working with human volunteers, Masataka Watanabe's team at the University of Tokyo monitored brain activity in the primary part of the visual cortex, 
where visual information is first processed. By changing the visibility of images seen by the volunteers, the team saw no difference in activity when the images were visible or invisible, meaning their awareness and perception of the images must happen elsewhere in the brain. Even if the visual input is actually there into your brain, uh, when you don't see it, there is no modulation in the primary visual cortex. So we need like extra experiments to look where exactly awareness modulate a neural activity. The world's smallest four-wheel electric car has been created by scientists at the University of Groningen. Ben Feringa's team have developed a single molecule motor which can move in a chosen direction after the injection of electrons by using four attached rotary units. The units change shape in response to the incoming electrons, propelling the molecule forward along a copper surface. Paul Weiss, director of the California Nanosystems Institute, comments on the discovery. We're really just getting the first glimpses in this field. Single molecule motion is something we can now do. This beautiful work by Feringa, the excitement there is that four motors on different parts of one molecule are all working together in concert to move a structure forward. If we can understand motion at these scales where we know everything about the system, we hope to bring that to bigger systems. So, for instance, the motors that we have running our automobiles now don't work very efficiently. We may be able to make motors that are more efficient. And finally, the Rolls-Royce Science Prize was awarded this week to Staunton-on-Wye Endowed Primary School in Hereford and Mulberry School for Girls in London. Beating over 2,000 schools across the UK who had all developed science teaching projects, the two winning schools were awarded for their excellence in science teaching. Staunton-on-Wye winner and teacher Karen Williams discusses their winning project. The children built quite a large playhouse in our school grounds and they had to reach a joint decision about what materials they were going to use to build the walls and the roof of the hut. And during the project, they were very engaged. So we had five-year-olds talking about the pros and cons of different types of roofs and 10-year-olds grilling the architect about the merits of different types of lino and rubber as a building material. So it was combining practical science with a commitment to look at how we can make good decisions about what we're using. Joint Winners Mulberry School had developed a hydroponic greenhouse powered by renewable energy. More information on this year's entries and runners-up can be found online at science.rollsvoice.com. Mira Senthalingam with this week's Newsflash. And you can follow up on any of the news stories we've covered by going to thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. I wonder if that playhouse had a science lab built in, or maybe that's next year's project. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Sarah Castor-Perry. Still to come, Diana O'Carroll asks why umbilical cords don't get tangled up in the womb in our question of the week. And the scientific advisor on the recently released blockbuster Contagion talks to us about his involvement in the film. But first, the more that we learn about Neanderthals, the more fascinating they seem to become. Much of our understanding comes from a remarkable site on the south coast of Jersey called La Cote de Saint-Brelard. Here, archaeologists have found piles of butchered bones, suggesting that animals were literally driven over cliffs to kill them. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been to see it. I'm just clambering over the rocks, and it's a spectacular landscape. Over to my right, it's almost white, long, sandy beach that runs right across the bay out to the headland. And then behind me, these enormous granite 
cliffs, almost like towers, coming out straight from the uh, rocky shoreline. And Matt Pope is here from University College London. Now, Matt, this is world-class, really. Yeah, this is one of a very limited number of sites in the prehistoric world that document long-term occupations by ancient humans. It's part of a wider pattern that we see over the world sometime after 600,000 years ago where humans start on a long-term basis to colonise fixed places in landscapes and usually that means caves. Now we're looking out over the English Channel under a very heavy cloud today and if we go back, I don't know, 60,000 years, 100,000 years, this wouldn't have been water here. No, if we're going back into the last ice age, into the Devensian, the sea level would have been much lower. And what we would have been looking at is not a flat, featureless plain, but a landscape of granite bluffs, steep-sided granite ravines, all feeding in to a river valley system that ultimately feeds into the large English Channel River that would have run down the middle of the land under the sea today. The caves can only be reached at low tide and even then it's a difficult scramble across the rocks. At the top, Matt and his colleagues are scraping away at the ground with small archaeologist trowels. Wow, in the same Is that quite? No, no, it's My name's Dr Martin Bates. I'm from the University of Wales, Trinity St David in Lampeter and I'm a geoarchaeologist. So what is this? We're looking at, it looks just like a, a piece of flint. It's a piece of flint that's been um, chipped off a core. That flat surface on the top there, is where somebody's hit it down there and it's broken off. So this is only about the size of your thumbnail here, yeah. Martin. Yeah. How do you know it's not just a little bit of flint? How do you know that's been made? Flint doesn't occur naturally here. Any bit of flint that's uh, on this site must have been brought in by somebody. My name is Karen Rubens and I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton. La Cota Saint-Brelade is a site that everybody learns about as an undergraduate. Everybody knows it. It's such an important site for megafauna hunting. Everybody knows the story that Neanderthals used to drive mammoths off the cliff here um, and they have huge bone heaps under the arch. But then if you come here and you have to walk on the beach, on those pebbles, you have to climb around and then you come around the corner and you can see the scale of it and the massive amount of sediment and rubble that is still here. Uh, it's very impressive and it's very difficult to describe because even if you see pictures, you can't imagine the scale. Of course, the thing that is really captivating about the site are the piles of fauna, piles of mammoth and piles of butchered rhinoceros and trying to envisage what the site was like then. Now, we're pretty sure it was still enclosed or at least partially enclosed at that stage and also the site would have been much fuller and so you're within a cave environment with a solid roof they're bringing we think in these elements of mammoth skull mammoth ribs into the site and they're carrying out napping there we also know that there's ash and burnt bone as well so at this stage, if you're imagining it, we're in a very cold environment, sea levels are very low. They found an area of shelter here that they're using for the sharing of meat, for the butchering of animals, um, for making flint tools, and they're also burning material, potentially bone. Just being here and just talking to, to the three of you, you could sense the, the sort of excitement of and you're finding things. We've been here, you know, between the tides, three hours or so, and yet you found a couple of pieces of flint, you just found a little tooth, you know, it, it's exciting stuff. 
Well, it's an incredibly rich sign. That's why, you know, our excitement, we hope, can now translate into preserving it for, for future generations. And that's going to take, take a lot of work. And this is just the first stage in stabilising the site and working with the site owners to affect a long-term preservation solution here. Gosh, I absolutely want to go there now. University College London archaeologist Matt Pope ending Richard Hollingham's report from Jersey. And you can hear more about the project in a special edition of the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find on our website at nakedscientists.com slash planet earth. Sarah. Now, Steven Soderbergh's latest film, Contagion, released just recently, depicts the series of events that unfold with the outbreak of a new strain of flu. But how do you ensure that films like this are scientifically believable? Well, that's where people like Ian Lipkin, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Columbia, come in. He was hired to ensure that the scenario portrayed by the film was realistic. I caught up with him to discuss his role on the film set, and before that, what causes new diseases and pandemics to emerge in the first place, and what strategies have been put in place to reduce the risks. The most important advance in the past few years has been the international health regulations, to which uh, all of the major countries that are represented in the UN have signed on to this. What the international health regulations uh, mandate is that not only is there a requirement for improving health surveillance in your own country, but also supporting the improvements uh, in the developing world as well. So. This means that, assuming that we follow this through to its logical conclusion, that that we will have high-quality surveillance uh, all over the world and that people will report in a timely fashion. There are a number of assumptions there, of course, and one is that the resources are available to enable this, uh, and that's not clear right now, and it's become obviously more difficult with the global economic crisis. Nonetheless, there is a firm commitment on the part of uh, the major industrialized nations to make certain that this does come into place. I suppose it'll be a, a combination of observing at internal, national-wide levels, but also working between countries at an international level to keep an eye on things and track the movement of such a pandemic. That's correct. And, of course, one of the things that we would like to do would be to prevent or interdict a pandemic by recognizing potential before something moves from animals into the human population. Fully three-quarters of emerging infectious diseases originate in wildlife and then either move through domestic animals into people or move into people directly. And uh, there are many examples of this, HIV, SARS, influenza virus, West Nile virus. One of the things we're trying to do is to extend surveillance uh, from the human community into the animal community. So there are a number of of efforts that have been led uh, in the UK, probably the most Support has been found through the Wellcome Trust in the United States, it's USAID, and all these groups are collaborating and trying to support one another in these efforts to identify potential pathogens of humans and animals. Now, sometimes we focus on, on gorillas and, and chimpanzees because we think about HIV and Ebola and Marburg and so on, but over the past four or five years, people have focused on bats. Bats appear to be tolerant to infection with many of these exotic and highly virulent viruses. So examples would be rabies and uh, SARS and and Ebola and Marburg. And the bats don't seem themselves to be affected by most of these pathogens. They seem to be able to coexist with them quite happily until somebody eats one of these bats or some sort of transfer of infectious material from a bat to a human. 
And so once we know more about the potential for animals like bats and other vectors to carry these infections and pass them on, what can we do with that information? Well, there are several things. Uh, First, of course, is you can monitor wildlife for the presence of these infectious agents. They're not all infected and they're not always infected. And by tracking the movement of these infectious agents in wildlife, you can understand the risk that might be associated with humans. In addition, you can develop specific measures to address these. So people are trying to develop vaccines against many of these agents. There can be drugs which can be developed. And once you know that a particular agent has the potential to move into humans, it becomes a much larger risk, and you're able to focus investment of resources on trying to address those risks. One of the things that we've been trying to do as a field in public health is to try to find ways in which we can streamline the process for creating vaccines for new infectious disease threats. When the pandemic H1N1 influenza virus surfaced in the Americas a couple of years ago, it took us fully six months to develop the vaccine, to validate it, to ensure that it was safe and efficacious, and then to begin to distribute it. And using modern molecular techniques, we have the capacity to make many vaccines more rapidly than that. And We're trying to find ways in which the regulatory science uh, can be brought up to speed. By regulatory science, I mean the ways in which you ensure that a vaccine or a drug or an antibody or any other sort of biological intervention is safe and effective. Uh, We need to find ways in which we can streamline that process and also, of course, make it less expensive. So it seems like there's an awful lot of sides to addressing obviously something that is an extremely complex problem there's modeling looking at potential vectors there's the sequencing of new viruses that come up when you were approached to do the film were you really keen to make sure that it addressed the different sides of a potential pandemic well to be honest the most important thing was to figure out whether or not these guys were sincere about making a great film the screenwriter who approached me initially scott c burns you know, was a very serious guy, and he said, look, I want to make something that's real. I want to make something that's important. Obviously, we need to fill theaters, but when we're done with this, we want to feel as though we've made a contribution. So we ran through a series of different scenarios, you know, which viruses were of interest, where might a virus originate, how would it spread, and you know, I got sucked in, quite frankly, because it was a lot of fun thinking about the ways in which we might be able to convey this message. I think they did a very good job. I mean, there are a couple of points where I think things might have been done a little bit differently, but by and large, the film is is accurate and it's timely and it has had an impact, not least in that it's drawn attention to the people who do this kind of work day in and day out, many who don't receive much in the way of accolades for the work that they do, some of whom die in the course of doing this work. But, you know, we try to emphasize the fact that everyone is at risk. You can't hide from infectious diseases, and it's important that everyone be protected. I'm very proud of the film, and it was a great deal of fun to make. I have to to say, I didn't anticipate it was going to be as much fun as it was. 
That was Professor Ian Lipkin from the University of Columbia discussing the feature film Contagion and how it celebrates the unsung heroes of our public health systems. And you can hear a longer version of that interview at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, got a couple of comments on the film. Uh, Munya says on her Facebook page, watching the movies making me paranoid about touching my face. Um, and uh, Jason Crocker said, uh, how much is Hollywood and how much is possible? You've seen it, haven't you? What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was great, although I did have to run to the bathroom and wash my hands straight away as soon as it was over. <laughs> and our guest this week is John Edmonds from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He'll be back in a few seconds to answer more of your questions that are coming in. But you've seen it, haven't you, John, the film? What did you think? Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, as an insider, I was struck with, you know, just how well the science was done in the film. I mean, obviously, they, they depict a worst case scenario, but it's one that actually could happen. Let's hope not. More from John in just a second. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. Now, you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. We're talking about infectious things this week, including pandemic flu and the film Contagion that we were just hearing about, which is out recently. Um, we're joined by our guest this week, John Edmonds. He's from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and has kindly volunteered to take on some of the questions that are piling in via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Naked Scientist. Yeah, I've got one, uh, one for you, John, from Josh Barry. He says, what is the difference between a cold and the flu? It's very difficult to say. Um, many different viruses cause flu-like symptoms and on the other side, uh, flu causes a range of symptoms. So without testing somebody virologically, we can't really tell whether somebody's got flu or not. Quite interesting you should say that, John, because John, your namesake in Peterborough, has phoned in and said, when my wife gets a bad cold or a flu, I don't get it, but I do appear to pass it on to my workmates. Why is this? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So probably about a third of people who get infected with flu don't display any obvious symptoms. They may display something very, very you know, very mild and they might not even notice it themselves. And they have the potential at least to spread the infection. Although, to be honest, we really don't know whether they genuinely do or not. I'd, I'd love John in Peterborough to log on to the flu survey and tell us about more about his illness and his spread because he just seems a, a very fascinating person. Well, following on from that, I've got, a, I've got another question from Facebook here from David Wood. He says, how is the flu caught in the first place? And, you know, how does it get passed from one person to the other? Again, we don't know in, uh, in any great detail. I mean, clearly, of course, if you sneeze, and, uh, then, then you're producing a lot of virus into the uh, immediate vicinity of you. So coughing and sneezing. So being symptomatic, those symptoms probably do aid the spread of the infection quite a lot. That's why blowing in the nose and the tissue and disposing of it properly is a good idea. But in detail, we don't know. Um, it's incredible that we don't know very well, but we don't. John, this is the question that I think people everywhere want to know the answer to. Sharon Coltman on Facebook has said, do men really suffer more when they catch the flu? The answer is yes, isn't it? <laughs> well, obviously, when we set up the flu survey, that was the first thing that we wanted to look at. Um, and what we found is that, uh, in fact, it doesn't seem to be the case. If anything, uh, women seem to report slightly more flu than men, probably because they have more contact with children. Um, maybe we men like to moan about it a bit more. Who knows? I certainly think it's true. I think men probably, if, if, they, if they're sort of not in contact with children as much, probably don't get as infected as often. It's certainly true for things like norovirus, isn't it? And, and um, that kind of sort of gut rot type bug. You often get far more female cases of that just because of contact with the kids. 
Exactly. I mean, kids are a big reservoir for many of these sorts of infections, not just the flu, but many of them. John, thank you very much. That's uh, John Edmonds from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Sarah. And now on the subject of things that are hard to answer, here's Diana O'Carroll, who's been untangling a tricky question of the week. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, it's time to loop the loop in utero. Hi, my name is Heather Demarest, and I'm a graduate student in philosophy at Rutgers University in the U.S. My question is about the umbilical cord. I'm seven months pregnant, and my baby's always moving around, sometimes completely changing positions in my womb. My question is, how does the long umbilical cord keep from getting tangled and knotted? Other cords tangle so easily. If I put my iPod headphones in my book bag or tie my dog to a tree... I quickly have a tangled mess, but a baby typically goes for nine months without any trouble. I love the show. Thanks very much. It's ought to be possible for a baby to tie itself in knots, so why doesn't it happen more often? My name's Christoph Lees. I'm a consultant in obstetrics and fetal medicine at the Rosie in Addenbrooke's at Cambridge. It's a really interesting question, and a lot of women do ask us this specific question. The umbilical cord is about 30 to 60 centimetres in length at term, so at 36, 37 weeks, it really is quite long. The important thing about it is not only is it long, but it's really thick. So it's up to two, sometimes two and a half centimetres thick. And not only does it contain two arteries and one vein, but it also contains a lot of jelly-like substance called Wharton's jelly that protects the blood vessels. So it really is encased in quite a thick covering and then the blood vessels have jelly around them. So that stops them getting twisted or occluded in any way. Now, sometimes you can have a knot in the umbilical cord. So babies obviously move around, they jump up and down, they turn turn over from head down to bottom down sometimes. Why doesn't that cause the umbilical cord to knot? Well, the answer is that sometimes it does. But it's very rare, in fact, for a knot to cause a problem for a baby. So because the umbilical cord is so thick, it tends not to knot itself easily. And even if it does knot itself, there's so much protective jelly around the blood vessels that it's very rare that it causes a problem. Umbilical knots do happen occasionally when a foetus swims through a loop in the cord, but the structure of the cord makes it difficult for this to have any adverse effects. There has to be a great deal of tension in order for the knot to compress the cord with any significance and therefore impede blood flow. Clifford Kay on the forum found us an article from Paediatric and Perinatal Pathology Associates in Louisville in the US and they estimated that around 3% of preterm stillbirths occur due to cord knots but some perfectly healthy babies are born with knots too. But from escapable tricks of miniature Houdinis to inescapable regions of space-time. Hello, my name's Clive Plum from Sutton Coalfield. What I'd like to know is... What happens when two black holes collide? What happens when two such regions of space-time collide? Can one escape the other? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can join us on the forum, which is at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. And if you have any thoughts on the consequences if two black holes collide, do get in touch.
Sarah, thank you. Well, that is it for this week. We have run out of time. Thank you very much to our production team, Tom Simpkins and Marisenta Lingham and Ben Vowsler, and to our guest this week, who is John Edmonds from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. His web address for his survey, flusurvey.org.uk. If you have a sniffle, he would love to hear from you. We'll see you next week for a Q&A science phone-in special. Take care in the meantime. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.